Well, again, good morning. Again, we're so glad you're here today, particularly if this is your first time with us. I want to give you guys a special shout out because, listen, I totally understand that even as an adult, it can be a little bit intimidating stepping into a new place. And so we're so glad that you took that risk. Uh, you decided to walk through our doors today. So honestly, thank you. Thank you for being here. Uh, as you just saw, we are entering this morning into part two of a series that we began last week called Brand New. And if you were not here last week, you kind of missed the entire premise for this series. You missed the entire introduction. And so it's for that reason, I can't encourage you enough to go to grumlaw.com slash messages. Get yourself caught up there. You can listen to the messages. You can watch the messages there. Or you can find us under Grumlaw Church, wherever it is that you happen to grab your podcast. Now, I said this last week, and I'm going to say it again right now. I want to beg. I want to implore. I want to do everything in my power to get you to stick with us for this entire series. It's a five-part series. Again, we're entering into part two this morning. Stay with us. And the reason that I think that's really, really important is because I know that this content has such drastic implications for every single one of our lives. Whether you come to church all the time or you basically never come to church. Honestly, whether you even call yourself a Christian or not. So do everything that you possibly can to keep coming back here. For some reason, you're not able to be here for a week during this series. Make sure, again, you're going online and you're catching yourself up there. Now again, last week we kind of gave the entire introduction so to kind of catch you up to speed and let you know what's going on here. The premise for this series and really what we talked about last week is that the arrival of Jesus signaled the end, as in the end, as in no more, as in it is done. The end of the temple model and the beginning of something, everybody read that with me, entirely new. One more time, entirely new. The arrival of Jesus signaled the end of the temple model and the, arrival, and the beginning of something entirely new. Jesus did not come to add on. Jesus did not come to supplement. It was not temple model 2.0. It was not the continuation of something. It was something entirely new. Now this thing that we're referring to within here, the temple model, I don't expect you to know what the heck that is, but the temple model represents all ancient religions. So we're talking about the Persian Empire, Babylonian Empire, ancient Israel, ancient Egypt, so on and so forth. But ironically enough, the temple model represents most of the religions, most of the religions that exist in our world today. Now, whether we're talking about the ancient world or we're talking about present day, the temple model always has, always has four components. There's always sacred places, sacred texts, sacred men, it's always men, and sincere, we could maybe use the word superstitious, there's maybe even some other S words that we could throw in there, but we'll give them the benefit of the doubt and sincere follows. There's always some sacred building that then houses some sacred text that is in turn by some, controlled by some sacred men that then communicate to the sincere, sometimes superstitious followers how you are supposed to live your life. And you better live your life according to how those sacred men, again, it's always men, tell you to live your life. Otherwise, you might find yourself outside of the good graces of the God that you happen to worship. But as we saw last week, Jesus came along, and again, he launched something entirely new. It was a complete departure from the old. It was a complete departure from the temple model. And not just for the Jewish people, not just for ancient Israel, but for the entire world. And this brand new that Jesus would launch, there would be a new covenant, a new covenant between us and God. There would be a new command, a new command that would replace all of the other commands. No longer would you have to follow those 613 laws that were contained within the Jewish scriptures. In fact, you don't even need to follow the 10 commandments. Some of you aren't gonna really like that. But Jesus came along and he said, I I'm gonna replace all of that with a single command, with a single verb. There would be a new ethic that should trickle down into literally every area of our lives and all of that in turn would launch this brand new movement. Now, unfortunately for us, in our English Bibles, this word uh, movement, we don't see it there. We see a word, instead this word called church. And when we see church, we don't think of a movement. We don't think of a congregation. We don't think of an assembly. We think of a place. We, th we, th we think of a building. 
But Jesus came along and again, he said, no, 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 no more sacred places. I'm launching this brand new movement and I will be with that movement. I will be with these people wherever they go. See, the temple model was built around a standard that only the elite could meet. But Jesus came along, listen to this, and he raised the bar so high, he raised the standard so high that nobody could keep up. Jesus leveled the playing field and then he offered himself as the sacrifice for the sins of the world. The temple model required followers to come make peace with God. It was all about the vertical. It was all about worrying about where you stood with God. But Jesus said, forget about that. God is fine. I want you to worry how you are doing with the others around you. And the temple model, lastly, it was nation specific. It was all about going to that specific nation that again, that had that specific place that then housed those specific texts that were then controlled by those specific sacred men. But again, Jesus came along and he said, no, 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 no. This isn't nation specific. This is for all nations. No more sacred places. In fact, when you are inside of the most sacred place that you could possibly imagine, just remember, it'll never be more sacred. It'll never be more valuable than the person that sits to your left or the person that sits to your right. Jesus launched something brand new. And wouldn't you know it, this new movement that Jesus launched, it got off to an incredible start. uh, Gentiles, non-Jews in particular, they found it to be irresistible. But, and there always seems to be a but with this stuff, but first century Jewish Christians had a tension that they found really, really difficult to manage. As we've all experienced in our lives and as we touched on a little bit last week, old habits die hard. And and they had a heck of a time just abandoning everything that they had grown up with. They had a hard time just abandoning all this stuff that they they had experienced for their entire lives. That they had a hard time just throwing all that stuff to the side for the new that Jesus had introduced. It almost felt to them sacrilegious, which brings us to this really, really important point that we're really gonna drive home even more next week, so make sure you come back next week. But it's this, our consciences determine religious realities whether they reflect reality or not. Process that, think about that one more time. Our consciences determine religious realities whether they reflect reality or not. We've all experienced this at different points in our lives. Maybe you have said to somebody or maybe somebody has said to you at a certain point in your life, well, you shouldn't feel that way. Don't feel that way. You don't need to feel that way. It works really well in marriage. You should try it there. Or or maybe somebody has said something like this to you before or you've said it even to somebody else. You shouldn't feel guilty about that. You, You don't need to feel guilty about that. Now, does, does that person saying that, does the guilt suddenly go away? Does, does your check in your spirit, that check in your conscience, do those things suddenly just kind of disappear? Of course not. And why? Because your conscience has been fine-tuned to a certain set of values. We've all been a part of situations before where other people are doing something, and it doesn't seem to bother them at all. But it really, really irritates. It really, really bothers you. And again, it's because your conscience has been fine-tuned to a certain set of values, and that is often, oftentimes, what we experience as religion. I went actually, and this might be the surprise of some of you, I actually went to a Catholic high school, and I'm actually really, really thankful for that experience. I I didn't grow up in a a Catholic household. My parents sent me to this specific school for the academics and for the sports, and uh, at the time, even going into college, I'm like, I don't know that was the best decision, but I'm actually really thankful for it now because so many of you have Catholicism in your roots and I can actually have intelligent conversations with a lot of you rather than just regurgitating whatever I read on Wikipedia. But anyway, uh, one of the things that, that I never could really get my head around, and in fact, I remember asking my friends about, was the idea of confession. And I remember just, just talking to them and being like, okay, let me get this straight. You have to go into a room 
and then there's like a screen, and on the other side of that screen, you just kind of, like there's a person that sits there, and you admit all these things to that person, you tell them all the terrible things that you did over, over the last week, and then that person is somehow kind of intervening with God on your behalf, and just like, that the slate's wiped clean, like, like help me out with that. I could never understand, never understand why they didn't just go to God directly. But after, again, being in that experience over a four-year period, I, I, I totally kind of understand, and if that's maybe your beliefs right now, I, I, I'm sympathetic to that because, again, your conscience has been fine-tuned to a certain set of values. Another example that I thought of as, as I was preparing for this, uh, growing up, I thought pretty much the worst thing that you could watch, the worst thing that you could possibly view was a show called The Simpsons. I mean, I thought it was just the worst thing ever because the handful of times where, where my brothers and my siblings and I got caught watching The Simpsons, I mean, my parents treated it like they, they caught us watching pornography. It was like, oh my gosh, like we shouldn't watch this apparently. Like my conscience was kind of getting fine-tuned so much so that when I, I think it was in the thir third grade, maybe the fourth grade, every single winter we would take a ski trip with another family called the Bartons. Uh, and, and they had kids that were a little bit older than us and I really looked up to the Bartons and they were like these great, you know, men of God that I'm like, this is who I want to be like when I grow up and we went out to eat at a Ponderosa which was like really really entertaining to go to a Ponderosa just kind of all together but particularly this family because these are all like these really really big like six foot six guys and I was just like appalled at how much food they cons could consume but afterwards they said hey Shay you want to ride with us back to the cabin that we were all staying in together and I was like yeah oh my gosh this is like the best thing ever I get to hang out with the Barton boys and I got in their van which is one of those high top vans with the TVs in that when you're a kid you think you're sweet when you get older you realize they're creepy right and I got in that van and they had a TV in there and wouldn't you know it guess what was playing on that TV the Simpsons and I was like oh my gosh you guys watch the Simpsons what are you doing and I asked them I was like you guys are allowed to watch The Simpsons? And shockingly to me, they're like, The Simpsons is our favorite show. And then they pulled out this Tupperware container of VHS tapes that they had meticulously recorded like every Simpsons episode. I remember going back to my parents going, Mom, Dad, the Bartons watch The Simpsons. Like how soon are they going to hell? I couldn't believe it. Now why would I think that way? Because again, my conscience had been fine-tuned. And this is precisely why, for a lot of you that are sitting here today, that, that, that there are gonna be certain points during this series, if you stay plugged in with us, that you're gonna go, I don't like that. There are gonna be points where, where, where you feel it to be a little bit unsettling. You're gonna be frustrated with certain things that come flying out of my mouth. And the reason that's the case is because your conscience has been fine-tuned to a certain set of values and over these next couple weeks, we're gonna disrupt things to a certain extent. And that's exactly what was going on with these first century Jewish Christians who couldn't really resolve the idea of just throwing all of that stuff to the side. And so what did they do? They attempted, they attempted to assimilate Jesus into the temple model. They attempted to take everything that they'd ever known, everything that they had grown up with, and just kind of merge it, assimilate it with the new that Jesus had introduced into the world. But thank God, thank God, eventually onto the scene comes the Apostle Paul to the church's rescue. Now, I don't expect you to know who Paul is, uh, but Paul... Uh, he, he is probably the most famous church planner of all time. In fact, Paul is the reason that any of us even know who Jesus is. Paul, before he became Paul, though, and became this, you know, devout Jesus follower, before that point, Paul was actually known as Saul of Tarsus. And Saul of Tarsus was a fire-breathing Pharisee Christian hater in the worst way. 
When this whole new thing came about called Christianity, Paul looked up to God and he said, don't worry, I got this. He, he was as good at following those 613 laws as anybody that had ever walked the earth. He took Christianity as a threat. And so he devoted the rest of his life to, to hunting down and persecuting and killing and arresting Christians all in the name of God. But then in a complete 180 turn and a total turn of events, he actually becomes a Jesus follower and receives this new name. No longer is he Saul, but he now is Paul. And he, more than anyone else, because of his experience as a Pharisee, which is a sect of Judaism, which held very, very tightly to those 613 rules, he, more than any well, anyone else, understood that this was not Judaism 2.0. This was not Temple Model 2.0. This was a complete departure. This was something entirely new. He understood better than anyone the dangers of mixing and matching the old with the new. And so, on Paul's first missionary journey, he takes all of these little missionary journeys all over the ancient world, but the first one that he took to uh, was a place called Galatia. Galatia is a, was a Roman province that would sit in present-day Turkey. And he starts to plant all these little ecclesias. Ecclesia is the word that we should find in our English scriptures. It literally translated, again, means movement, congregation, assembly. Instead, we have the word church. But he begins to plant and he starts all these little ecclesias all over Galatia. And they have some really, really good momentum. But wouldn't you know it, almost as soon as he leaves Galatia, these other Jewish Christians kind of come swooping in right after him and begin to undo everything that he has worked so hard to accomplish while he was there. They begin to undo this whole message that Jesus was bringing something entirely new. They, they start telling people, hey, okay, listen, Paul kind of gave you part of the story. Like, like he wasn't inaccurate with what he was saying, but he didn't tell you the whole story. If you want to be a part of this new Jesus movement, if you want to label yourself as a Christian, then you actually have to first become Jewish because, I mean, that just makes sense, right? Jesus was a Jew. Jesus followed the laws of the Torah. Okay, so therefore you have to do that. So if you want to become a Jesus follower, you first have to become Jewish. And what we're gonna do here for, for the rest of our time uh, together is best as I can, I want to try and illustrate the extreme anger, the extraordinary emotion that the Apostle Paul had around the idea of mixing and matching the old with the new. And in this letter that, that, that is titled Galatians, we get a glimpse as to what, okay, this was a big, big deal. This wasn't like a little issue, this was an enormous issue. Now for the sake of our conversation today, I wanna to introduce you to a term called Judaizers. Judaizers, this is a New Testament term, were Jewish Christians who believed Gentiles or non-Jews must convert to Judaism to join the Jesus movement. Now again, this was a big deal because this was a really, really complicated process because frankly, uh, Judaism as a religion is really, really complicated. And for the men specifically, it required a, little, required a little bit of surgery, okay? Suddenly what was supposed to be really, really simple suddenly got really, really complex. It got really, really difficult. And so when Paul hears about these guys swooping in and undermining everything that he has worked so hard to accomplish, when he hears about these guys swooping in and, and undermining the purity of the Jesus movement, as you might imagine, and, and, and Paul, as, as you see here, if you actually read this stuff for yourself, and I would encourage you to do so, he's a type A personality. He wore his emotions on his sleeve. Uh, he gets a little bit angry. In, in fact, he becomes apoplectic. Now, I don't expect you to know what the heck apoplectic means, but it's like the word, the best word I could think of as to like the, the righteous anger that Paul was feeling around this idea of mixing and matching and merging the old with the new. Now, notice in the middle of apoplectic, when I've highlighted it here, is the word pop, and I did that intentionally, because Paul is about to pop off. 
He is not like a, a, a little angry. He's not going, oh gosh, these guys are really frustrating me. He is about to lose his mind. This was a big, big deal. Because what these Judaizers were doing is it diluted, it denuded, and polluted the message of Jesus. And, and best as I can, I, I want to try and show you just what a big deal this, week, this was. Because next week, I'm telling you, you're, there's going to be things that are said that I'm telling you, you're going to feel like it's pretty unsettling. And the week after that, you might be like, you know what, we're out of here. You're going to go scoop up your kids out of Grumlaw Kids and be like, we're leaving. It's a cult. I knew it. And I'm telling you, if you don't have a good understanding of this stuff, it's going to sound even more absurd. And so here's what Paul said to, to these, again, these first century Jesus followers in Galatia that were now kind of being polluted by these Judaizers. He says this, he says, it is for freedom, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. By the way, if the version of Christianity that you are following is not characterized by freedom, you are doing it wrong. If following Jesus does not make you feel free, you're doing it wrong. He says, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then, and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. And when he says burdened again by a yoke of slavery, he's talking about the old way of doing things. He goes, that was the old way. I can't begin to understand why you would go back to something that was so much more complex, when there's so much simpler, when there's something so much better sitting right in front of you. And then he says, mark my words. Now, in our English text here, we have an exclamation point, but in the original Greek language, there's actually not one there. But when the English uh, translators were, were translating this, uh, the word that was originally used in Greek conveyed such extraordinary emotion. They're like, okay, we got to put an exclamation point there. Mark my words. It's almost like Paul is trying to leap through the page and like strangle these Judaizers. He says, mark my words. I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value at all. Now, this is worth mentioning. Paul is not anti-circumcision. Paul was, was circumcised. All of Jesus' closest followers, his 12 disciples, the guys that spent every waking moment with him, they were circumcised. Every man in the Jewish community was circumcised. Most of the guys that are sitting here today, I would assume, are circumcised. In fact, if you've been circumcised, go ahead. No, I'm just kidding about that part. Okay. <laughs> Paul, <laughs> Paul was not against circumcision. But circumcision, in this context, it represented the old covenant. It represented the old way of doing things. And Paul's telling them, if you get circumcised, you are embracing the old, and that is unnecessary. Because Jesus brought about something entirely new. He's like, think of it this way. It's like you are neglecting the new, the better new, and instead you're deciding to embrace the old. Why would you do that? He says, again, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised, that he is obligated to obey the entire law, all 613 of them. See, these Judaizers are taking everything they've grown up with, they're taking the old way of doing things, and they're merging it with the new that Jesus introduced. And they're looking at Paul going, Paul, what's the big deal? It's not really a big issue. Why can't we mix and match? We're taking a little bit of the old, there's some pretty good stuff in there, we're mixing it with a little bit of the new. Why are you making such a big deal of this? But Paul's saying, no, 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 no. You do not get to pick and choose. You, you can't say, I'm gonna get circumcised, and I'm gonna kind of select it. He's like, I know better than anyone what it is like to try to keep up with those 613 laws. It is next to impossible. You are either all in or you're not in at all. You don't get to pick whatever is convenient for you. Circumcision has no value anymore. The law has no value anymore because Jesus launched something brand new. He says, you 
who are trying to be justified by the law have been alienated from Christ. You have fallen away. You have fallen away from grace by trying to be made right with God by following the rules, by following the law. You're actually, you're actually doing something that is detrimental to you. You're separating yourself. You're alienating yourself from Christ. Now, to better illustrate this and Make sure that you're all tracking with me and understanding what, what, what Paul's kind of communicating here. This would be like one of you after church today, you know, coming up to me and being like, you know what, Shay, we are just so thankful for the role that this church is not only playing in our lives, but it's, it's doing great things for our kids, really for our entire family. And it is a way to say thank you to you and, and what, what's going on here at this church. We wanted to give you this. And I open a card up and in there's a $100 gift certificate to a restaurant right around here. And I'm like, oh, no, 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 I just I can't take that. There's no way that I can take that. But you're insistent. You keep trying to push it back at me. And I say, okay, okay. How about this? How about I'll give you $80 for the $100 gift card? And you'd look back at me like, no, I'm not taking 80 bucks for the gift card. It's a gift. Take it. And I'm like, okay, how about 50? You'd still be like, no, I'm not taking 50 bucks. Like, no, this is a gift card. Take it. But go, okay, okay. How about $20? Will you take $20 for the gift card? And finally, because I'm being like just relentless and so persistent, you're like, okay, fine, we'll take $20. The minute, the minute that you take that $20 bill out of my hand, No longer is it a gift card. It has just transformed its way into a discount card. I have just taken the gift out of the card. Paul's saying grace is is the cornerstone. It is the hallmark of Christianity. Grace is God knowing everything about you your deepest, darkest secret, secrets, all that stuff that floats around in your head that you wouldn't ever want anyone to know. God, that, that grace is God knowing every single thing about you, but yet he loves you anyway. Grace is unmerited favor. And the minute that you start trying to earn it, you have done away with it. It is no longer a gift. Paul's saying the moment that you start bargaining with God the, the, the moment that you start adopting the old way of doing things and going, hey, God, did you see that? I'm following the law, I'm following the law. The minute that you keep looking up, you have fallen away, as he writes it here, you have fallen away from grace. He says, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. All of that old covenant stuff is worthless. It does not have any value anymore because Jesus launched something entirely new. And then Paul is, is about to say something that, that I'm telling you, we just breeze by. I mean, we, as we talked about last week, we don't even give this stuff so, so much as a passing thought, particularly those of you that, that grew up going to church. But I'm telling you, the, the implications for what he is about to say are staggering. I mean, huge, huge, huge implications for every single one of our lives. And I'm telling you, if I took this one verse that we're about to see here, and I isolated it, and we talked about it for an entire Sunday, and I talked about the ramifications and the implications and how it applied to your life, I don't think most of you would come back the next week. You'd be like, you know what, we need to find a new church. If you have ever, in fact, resisted Christianity, or you've ever, you know, I I don't really want to go to church, what he is about to say is almost certainly the reason that you have resisted the church, that you have resisted Christianity. So much So much of what is resistible about the Christian church comes down to the fact that we have not embraced what Paul is about to say. So Paul, ex-Pharisee Paul, law-abiding Paul, Paul getting all 613 laws right, Paul. Paul, the guy who wrote more than half of the New Testament. Paul, who is the only reason that any of us know who Jesus even is. Paul says this. He says, the only thing that counts, as in, that's it. The only thing 
that counts is faith expressing itself through love. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. No 613 laws, no 10 commandments. The only thing that counts, the only thing that has any value, the only thing that matters is faith expressing itself through love. See, the old way of doing things, the, the, the temple model was all about the vertical. It was all about looking up and all, constantly checking in with God, saying, God, how we doing? How we doing? How we doing? God, did you see that? I hope he ignored that. But God, how we doing? How we doing? How am I doing? How am I doing? And Paul says, stop worrying about that. Stop worrying about how you are doing with God. If you believe that God sent his one and his only son for you, if you believe that God sent his son to pay the penalty for your sins, then you're in. You're fine. Stop worrying about it. If someone will die for you, this is important, pay attention to this. If someone will die for you, I assure you, they are for you. You never have to go to bed again wondering, oh my goodness, how are we doing with God? God, are we okay? You're fine, shut up already. Stop looking up and start looking around because the only thing that matters is how you treat other people. Who? Stop worrying about God. God is fine. See, that, that, that whole thing of us looking to the vertical and, and worrying about where we stand with God, that, that had its place, but that was the temple model. We're done with that. Jesus gave us something so much better. And then he continues, he says, you were running a good race. And then who cut in? Again, think of the symbolism of why he would say that. Who cut in on you to keep you from obeying the truth? He's like, you guys were killing it. You were doing such a good job. What the heck happened? And then he gives us an illustration. He says, a little yeast works through the whole batch of dough. A little single cell fungus, right? That's what yeast is. Works through the entire batch of dough. I mean, you put a little bit of yeast into a batch of dough and you come back later and things have changed. A little bit of temple model. A a little bit of legalism. A little bit of self-righteousness. A little bit of the old pollutes the entire thing. It only takes a small dose of the wrong thing to corrupt the whole thing. It it only takes a little bit of the old to corrupt the new. Paul knew exactly where this was all gonna lead. In, In fact, it's led many of us that are sitting here today to exactly where we are at today. Now, now here's the R-rated part that we're about to see here. Here's the part that gives us just like a little bit of a glimpse into just how apoplectic Paul came at the idea of mixing and matching the old with the new. He says this, as for those agitators, and I I just picture him writing agitators and like really wanting to write something far worse, but he's like, agitators. As for those agitators, those Judaizers, I wish they would go the whole way and emasculate themselves. Yikes, Paul, you're mad. He's like, yeah, if you're gonna start snipping, why don't you just cut the whole thing off? Paul's words, he's saying, you have no idea. You have no idea what is at stake. I mean, isn't this crazy? Not the part where he's telling people to emasculate themselves. I mean, I guess that's a little bit crazy. But isn't it crazy that Paul knew that that it's like he was looking forward 2,000 years to present day and he knew exactly where this was all gonna lead. It's like he could predict the future. And I'll tell you how he knew. 
It's because Paul had a front and center seat for the temple model in the first century. And he knew that if you try to blend the old, the temple model, with the new that Jesus introduced into the world, you are going to miss out on the best. That it's not going to be a 50-50 split. It won't even be 80-20. It's going to work itself out more to like 99% temple model and 1% Jesus. Paul knew that in turn, leaders would become self-righteous because leaders get to interpret the text however they want to interpret the text and, and, and however it's most convenient for them, even if it means to the detriment of, of all the followers. Because there's no way they're ever going to lead those followers to believe that they're not fine because the minute that they are not fine, they're no longer the righteous leader anymore. Paul knew that followers would become hypocrites because we keep dumbing down the law. We keep dumbing down the standard to, to a level that is more manageable to a level that we can keep up with so it doesn't irritate, so it doesn't bother our consciences. But Jesus came along and he jacked up the standard so high that nobody could keep up. Jesus came along and he said, hey, you know that whole thing that you're not supposed to commit adultery? I mean, everybody knows that. You don't need a Bible verse for that. Everybody knows you're not supposed to commit adultery. But I tell you that if you even look at another person lustfully, you have committed adultery with them. Jesus said, you don't know that verse where like, you know, you're not supposed to murder anybody. I mean, again, you don't need a verse for that. Everybody knows you're not supposed to kill people. But I tell you that if you hate somebody in your heart, you have already committed murder. Jesus jacked up the standard so high, he leveled the playing field. But in the temple model, the standard is so low that followers become hypocrites and leaders become self-righteous. Paul knew that texts would be manipulated. That it was only a matter of time where, where we start pointing the finger and we start pulling verses out of context and we start misinterpreting pieces of scripture. We go, just because we have a verse for it, you can't do that. And you better not do that because I have a verse for that. And ultimately, and this is the biggest tragedy of all, Paul knew that people would be mistreated. You ever been mistreated by a Christian? You, you ever had a Christian place a rule, place a rule over love? If we cling to the old things, we will miss out on the main thing. If we cling to the old things, we will miss out on the best thing. He wraps this up. He says, you, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love, because Christian or not, you don't need to be a Christian to understand this. When, when, when you indulge the flesh, when you go with whatever way that, that your flesh, that your body is telling you to go, Christian or not, we all know how that turns out. It leads to regret. It leads to mornings where you're looking yourself in the mirror going, what in the heck did I do that for? It leads to hurt, not only for you, but for the others around you. In fact, it leads to the very thing that is the opposite of the only thing that matters. And then Paul continues, and he doubles down on the statement that he had just made. That, that, that statement that maybe you thought he misspoke, that maybe you thought he exaggerated when he said the only thing that matters is faith expressing itself through love. Paul says this, he says, for the entire law, for the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. Not 613, not even 10, just one. This one thing would inform 
the rest of the things. This one thing would inform everything else. Jesus would say, love God, love your neighbor. Everything else is commentary. Everything else is detail. In fact, how you love God is demonstrated by how you love those around you. The temple model says to look up to see how you're doing. And Jesus says, nope, look around and you will see how you are doing. The only thing that counts I mean, think about that. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. I'm telling you, when you get this right, your religious experience will be characterized by freedom more than anything else. And if you're sitting here today and you're going, this feels extreme, this feels dirty, I don't like it, maybe it feels unsettling to you, I'm telling you, it's because you're paying attention. And it's exactly, it's exactly how those first century Jewish Christians felt and it's exactly why they began to blend. It's exactly why they started taking the old and mixing it with the new. But can you just imagine for a moment, and I promise we'll be done here in just a second. Can you imagine for a moment what would change? What would change in your marriage? What, what would change in your place of work? What would change with your family? What would change in this community? Can you imagine how our nation would change if, if just the Christians, if just the people that show up to a church on a Sunday morning decided the only thing that matters is my faith in Christ manifesting itself in love for others. That's it. <laughs> I'm telling you, that would change your relationships. That would change your marriage. That, that that would change our world. So my challenge to you this week, what would it look like if in every single situation that you encounter with a coworker, with your kids, with your spouse, with your loved ones, every situation you, you, you face this week, rather than just responding, doing whatever you normally do, what would it look like if in every situation you asked yourself the question, what does love require of me? What does love require of me? I know that I should, but what does love require of me? I mean, they are driving me nuts, but what does love require of me? And that is the new that Jesus introduced into the world. And that's the new that made Christianity as a movement absolutely irresistible, and we can absolutely reclaim it, but it starts with asking that question, what does love require of me? The only thing, he says, the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love.